Welcome to Opinion Has It. I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Its scale is unprecedented. COVID-19 has infiltrated nearly every corner of the globe. Global confirmed coronavirus infections have now well surpassed the 16 million mark with no sign of slowing down. The U.S. accounts for the most infections with more than 4.1 million cases. We need effective vaccines, diagnostics and therapeutics in unprecedented quantities and at unprecedented speed. Yet far from working together to tackle the pandemic, countries are largely trying to combat it on their own. The word pandemic means all. So if you're going to talk about identifying, responding to, and containing pandemics, you've got to think globally. For policymakers facing a crisis that only global cooperation can overcome, has the nation state become a trap? The nation-state's role as the building block of a global system can be traced to 17th century Europe. Anchored in the principles of sovereignty, the nation-state aimed to balance power among neighbors, thereby reducing conflict and enabling the political stability that economic growth requires. In recent decades, however, globalization has placed the nation-state under intensifying pressure. As our economies and societies have become increasingly interconnected, so have the challenges we face. Well, the big tech industry is frequently at the center of controversy these days. The so-called FANG companies face criticism for policy, surveillance of users, and just sheer marketplace dominance. Now to a dire warning about climate change. According to a new report, experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. All of this has reinforced the importance of global cooperation. Yet today, Amid the backlash against globalization, many countries are going their own way. First working day in office, U.S. President Donald Trump signaled protectionism would be front and center of his economic vision. What does the pandemic imply for the future of the nation state and the world order it has long underpinned? Here to discuss is Daniel Dresner, a professor of international politics at Tufts University and the author of The Toddler-in-Chief what Donald Trump teaches us about the modern presidency. Hello, Dan. Hey, Elmira. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I can't complain. He joins us from his home in Newton, Massachusetts. So I want to start by understanding the origins of the nation state. Political scientists trace the concept of it back to the Peace of Westphalia, which ended the Thirty Years' War in Europe in 1648. How did that settlement shape our understanding of sovereignty, and what has that meant for international relations? Well, the potted history version is that prior to the Peace of Westphalia, Europe in particular had what we would consider sort of nested and overlapping forms of sovereignty. There were a few entities that might look like states as we describe, you know, we think of them now, which is a, a sort of centralized bureaucratic structure that has exclusive sovereignty over all their area. But there were a lot of other sort of sources of uh, legitimate authority as well. Among others, the Catholic Church, uh, which clearly played a role in terms of, of dealing with the Holy Roman Empire. We can think of the Hanseatic League, which was a league of merchant cities uh, that had some influence as well. And generally speaking, you know, sort of conceptually, the Peace of Westphalia is thought to be the moment in which it was recognized that states, 
as we conventionally understand them now, would have that kind of sovereignty over their territory. And entities like the Holy Roman Empire would no longer declare that they necessarily had that kind of secular power. Now, it should be stressed that, first of all, this only took place in Europe. And second of all, it wasn't like the Peace of Westphalia happened and then suddenly everyone snapped their fingers and, and that was the shift. But nonetheless, over time, what we would think of as sort of Westphalian sovereignty began to take hold, at least in Europe. The principle of Westphalian sovereignty proved potent. In 1945, nearly three centuries after its inception, it was enshrined in the United Nations Charter. And it is now my duty, my honor and my privilege in the chair to call for a vote on the approval of the Charter of the United Nations. It states that nothing should authorize intervention in matters essentially within the domestic jurisdiction of any state. Nation by nation, the delegates stand up for the great new charter they hammered out together. Fifty nations standing side by side, unanimous for peace. In other words, even as global powers were building a framework for international cooperation, the imperative of preserving national sovereignty remained paramount. This ensured that nation-states as they engage with one another were formally on an equal footing. As Henry Kissinger wrote in 2014, the Westphalian system is based not on a single claim to truth or universal rule, but on the attribute assigned to every state of sovereign power over its territory. I want to actually pick up on this notion of sovereignty as it relates to international cooperation. Those concepts have often been at odds. Let's look at the example of the UN. The organization has an impressive history of producing resolutions and international law, but for whom? Right, that's a fair point. So sovereignty was generally recognized as an important concept, except, of course, when it was not. And there are times where states presumably can voluntarily cede their sovereignty. And, you know, the sort of body of international laws and treaties would represent an example of that. There are also clearly examples in which sovereignty is infringed by great powers upon smaller powers, or if you want to look historically, by Western powers on territories that they decided to colonize. There is no denying that the sovereignty as an idea has evolved over time in terms of what entities or what governments we would think of as necessarily worthy of the notion of sovereignty. To some extent, the principle of Westphalian sovereignty seems almost self-sabotaging. It is a prerequisite for effective international engagement, beginning with cross-border exchanges of goods, ideas, and people. Increased openness brings significant benefits, from economic growth to greater security. But it also gives rise to many of the challenges the nation-state faces today. For starters, deepening economic engagement enabled the rise of multinational corporations, many of which have matched or surpassed the power and influence of the state. In the 17th century, the East India Company exercised enormous authority over the British Empire's interests in the subcontinent. Today, Apple, Facebook, and Google together have more users than China and India have citizens. The tech landscape has changed dramatically over the past decade. We have seen huge cultural shifts from the way our data is used to how we consume television and music. Such technology titans have reshaped lifestyles. They have created, destroyed, and transformed industries. They have moved politics. And they are notoriously difficult to regulate. 
Tech giants are increasingly under scrutiny from politicians, regulators, and experts on the left and the right. Some are concerned about their growing power, even calling them monopolies. Is Amazon, Google, or Apple, or all the above, are they monopolies that should be broken up? I want to talk about big tech, and I know that this is something that um, you spend a lot of time focused on. Companies like Google, Facebook, and Apple have grown in scope, and in doing so, they've raised a slew of regulatory challenges. To what extent have they and the emergence of the digital economy more generally exposed the limits of the nation state? The way in which big tech, I think, has challenged what we would normally think of with respect to the nation state is the fact that most of the big tech that we talk about operates in a world of of so-called natural monopolies. And this means that in contrast to sort of traditional spheres of the economy where we tend to assume a more competitive marketplace, big tech can really screw up massively in a variety of ways and nonetheless not go away. So there is a degree to which they have significant market power. And because they have significant market power, it means that rather than them necessarily being dependent on the state, you could argue that there are ways in which the state might be a little more dependent on them. And I think we can see this in terms of sort of Congress's fumbling efforts to try to, to, to regulate the internet. The other way in which I think you can argue that sovereignty is affected is that essentially within these sorts of worlds, and if you can, you can think of cyberspace as a, a sort of another, another kind of community that essentially it's the code writers that wind up being the rule makers. And that is not the state. That is the Facebooks and Googles and Amazons of the world. And I think the other thing that's worth noting is that, you know, 20 years ago, if we were having this conversation, that sort of statement would have sounded a little odd. But what has undeniably happened in the last 15 years is that these sorts of corporate powers have wound up carving out ever larger and more significant spheres in cyberspace. But the problem extends beyond big tech's monopoly power or the formation of cyberspace communities. The leaders of tech giants seem increasingly to be joining the ranks of leaders of nation states. Chinese President Xi Jinping travels to Washington, D.C. today after meeting with some of the biggest corporate names on the West Coast last night. He also met with tech CEOs like Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook, who spoke Mandarin to him, of course. Tim Cook of Apple, Jenny Rometty of IBM. Prime Minister Narendra Modi meeting Apple CEO Tim Cook there at the Silicon Valley. Remember, this is India's Prime Minister's first visit in about three decades at the Silicon Valley. In 2015, Chinese President Xi Jinping, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi, and Indonesian President Joko Widodo traveled to the United States, where they met not only with then-U.S. President Barack Obama, but also with the heads of Apple, Facebook, and Google. Great pleasure to welcome uh, President Widodo to the Oval Office. We asked Daniel what this tells us about policymaking in the 21st century. It tells us that leaders are concerned about the degree to which debate in cyberspace affects their standing. I think there's a bunch of different things going on there. One is, yes, they are concerned politically about these entities. I think another thing is just sheer economics, which is because these are incredibly rich, powerful corporations, countries that feel like they're technological laggards or countries that can potentially play technological catch up. In some ways, it's not so much they they don't like Facebook. They just want their own indigenous version of Facebook. And you can see that play out in, in particularly countries like Russia and China, where there are efforts to 
develop indigenous alternatives to these entities, which are presumably more pliant to those governments. The far-reaching influence of big tech is illustrative of a broader trend. As scholars like Moses Naim and Joseph Nye note, in the globalized world, power has become increasingly diffuse, and a growing number of non-state actors are getting in on the action. But it is not only multinationals that are capitalizing on this shift. Terrorist groups, criminal cartels, rebel militias, and other organizations have broken the nation-state's monopoly on the use of force. Charles Tilley famously said, war made the state and the state made war. So Islamist militants in Iraq have declared the completion of their Islamic state with a new caliphate under their leader Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. And in an audio file circulated online, a spokesman for the Islamic state of Iraq and the Levant is heard announcing the creation of the self-dubbed Islamic state that stretches from northern Syria to Iraq's Diyala province, much of which is already under militant control. So let me ask this. Are terrorist groups like ISIS, which have sought to take over territory and claim their own sovereignty, any different from the non-state actors that waged war in the past? I'm going to say mostly no, with one important exception. You know, the rise and fall of ISIS's caliphate, as it were, is in fact evidence that that a lot of the sort of violent non-state actors that we talk about in the 21st century are wannabe states. They are they are actors that want to control territory. They want to be recognized as sovereign actors. The problem, of course, is at the moment they actually do acquire territory, they are subject in some ways to the same pressures that that other nation states are. And so it is not surprising that even though ISIS originally was able to create a caliphate, one of the few areas of consistency, for example, between the Obama and Trump administrations was that both wound up trying to push ISIS away from its territory. The United States military, our coalition partners, and the Syrian Democratic Forces have liberated virtually all of the territory previously held by ISIS in Syria and Iraq. Now, the one way in which you can argue there's there's perhaps a difference is that these kinds of actors can nonetheless have an impact even if they don't control territory. And so one of the things about terrorist actors now is that, for lack of a way of putting it, the barriers to entry for destruction are lower now uh, in some ways than than used to be the case. So it is possible that if you have a relatively strong ideological following, you know, it is easy for groups to motivate individuals, even that are not necessarily under your direct control. And here we're, you know, thinking about lone wolf terrorists and things like that, to nonetheless take actions that presumably call attention to your cause. That you can argue is new. And, and here this ties into the previous conversation in terms of the use of the internet. The fact that groups like ISIS are able to use online networks as a way to, to develop adherence and fans. In the pre-internet world, what there often was was a lack of awareness that there were other people that felt the same way you did. So what the internet allows is for people who adhere to this ideology to realize not only that there's someone out there who agrees with them and is saying what they want to say, but also that they are part of a community. And so that I do think is new. We'll be right back. If you're a regular listener to Opinion Has It, you may find yourself asking, how can you help support the work we do here on the podcast? Honestly, the best way is to become a subscriber at Project Syndicate. 
And now we're offering our listeners 50% off a new subscription. That means for less than $1 a week, you can help us continue to interview the experts and join a community that's committed to a crucial public good, a truly open world of ideas. Use the discount code PODCAST2020, that's PODCAST2020, all one word, when you subscribe on project-syndicate.org. None of these challenges to sovereignty signal that the nation-state is waving the white flag. But to some extent, they have hampered the state's ability to fulfill its role as a guarantor of stability and a facilitator of prosperity. For example, they have contributed to an intensifying backlash against globalization and multilateralism. That backlash is nothing new. Already in 1999, tens of thousands of people took to the streets of Seattle to protest the dark sides of globalization. On November 30th, 1999, tens of thousands of activists from across the country and around the world prevented delegates from attending the global trade talks by forming a human chain around the Seattle Convention Center and shutting down the city's downtown. Dubbed the Battle of Seattle, the protests overshadowed and successfully disrupted the World Trade Organization negotiations. We The WTO was supposed to be a shining moment for Seattle. You can argue that Seattle was the first moment where it became apparent that there were at least significant elements of the population, even in the developed world, that were not necessarily keen on globalization. And there are ways in which ever since then, you know, each shock from 9-11 to the 2008 financial crisis to the 2016 populist uprisings, for lack of a way of putting it, were keyed off of problems or defects in globalization as we understand it. In many cases, the state's response to the shock Stan identifies has been turned inward. That tendency can be seen clearly today. Though the COVID-19 pandemic clearly demands a global response, many leaders have resisted cooperation. Joe Biden is blasting President Trump over his coronavirus response. We're still in a deep, deep job hole because Donald Trump has so badly bungled the response to coronavirus. U.S. President Donald Trump is the poster child here, but he is not alone. Now in Brazil, there's growing pressure on President Bolsonaro over what's been described as his chaotic response to the pandemic. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says that the coronavirus has been a disaster for the UK, but he says that now is not the right time to launch an inquiry into missteps. The comments come as the Prime Minister faces criticism over his handling of the crisis. Opposition leader Keir Starmer claims that he's been asleep at the wheel. Brazil's Bolsonaro, Russia's Putin and the UK's Boris Johnson have all been criticized for their COVID-19 responses. But those who hope that the pandemic will restore the Westphalian nation state to its former glory may find themselves disappointed, at least for now. In fact, for all the talk about deglobalization, few concrete steps have been taken in that direction. What COVID has done, I think, is raised awareness. There's still supply chains that are very heavily globalized. And while it might have been the case in the past that, let's say, countries like the United States or European countries might have viewed something like oil as something where you'd want a strategic reserve, 
Now we're starting to think about that in terms of medical goods or pharmaceuticals or what have you. And there's a concern about vulnerability to China. But that said, I also want to stress here that while there's been a lot of political rhetoric about this, that hasn't necessarily been matched by policy. And it is interesting to me that, in fact, most private sector firms have very firmly resisted the idea that they need to somehow you know, diversify their supply chains away from China or engage in what is called homeshoring. Um, so I really do think there's there's something of a mismatch between what you hear in terms of rhetoric and what you hear in terms of action. I would also say this has been reflected in what happened in Europe, which is after an initial wave in which you saw countries sort of nationalizing production of PPE, over the last couple of months, what you've seen in Europe has actually been some rather substantive steps towards integration encapsulated by the, the EU meeting this past week that agreed to the issuance of common euro bonds, which in some ways is a very significant step forward, particularly by a country like Germany. So I, I would say that there are ways in which COVID, you know, sort of the gut instinct was to think, oh, God, we need to make sure that we have, you know, more resilient supply chains and so forth. I'm not sure how long lasting that's going to be, though. And I'm not sure it's actually going to have any effect on the way private the private sector behaves. Well, I want to extend this out further from supply chains and the private sector. You've noted in the past that disease outbreaks take the 1918-1919 influenza epidemic to the 2009 swine flu pandemic have done little to shift the trajectory of global affairs. Will the impact of the COVID-19 crisis be similarly limited? The argument I will make is still no, that I don't think it's really going to have that dramatic a transformation. So it's worth asking, well, what what does a transformative effect look like? And I think there are two ways in which you could see that play out. One is, is that if you think of the pandemic as a shock that legitimately reverses trends and, and is an actual disjuncture in world politics, that would certainly be a, a transformative effect. So if this somehow dramatically reverse the distribution of power or truly alter the, the set of hegemonic ideas uh, in world politics. I think that would be important. I don't see either of those things necessarily uh, taking place based on the first six months of, of how COVID has played out. The other way in which there could be a transformative effect is if it rapidly accelerated pre-existing trends to the point where you hit like a real path-dependent outcome in which you can no longer see a deviation. This sort of gets at your question in terms of, of whether it's going to cause radical amounts of deglobalization. And again, I think the fact that there's significant private sector resistance in terms of things like protectionism suggests to me that unless the pandemic, you know, lasts for a lot longer than we think it will, it's not going to have that transformative effect. Now, it's worth noting that if you compare this to either the 1918-19 the influenza pandemic or the H1N1 outbreak in 2009, the interesting thing about those past two episodes is that they didn't take that long. The the sort of most severe elements of the influenza pandemic lasted something like six weeks, and I think H1N1 lasted just a few months. We are now in month six, and if it turns out that there are setbacks in terms of vaccines and therapeutics, if we're doing this for a year, two years, three years, then my prediction starts to really look bad, because the longer this will go on, the longer you can argue that there will be sort of path-dependent effects. But at this point, I still don't see it. Even if the pandemic doesn't single-handedly transform the world order, it has undermined America's already tarnished global image. At the same time, China has attempted to position itself as a champion of cooperation. 
China is carving out a new image on the world stage after claiming to have won the battle against coronavirus. A team of 14 medical experts from southeast China's Fujian province has arrived in Italy to help the fight against pandemic there. The Chinese government is sending much-needed supplies to pandemic-stricken countries, including the United States. Francis Fukuyama says that China will end up benefiting from the pandemic as power shifts eats. Do you agree? No. I, I mean, I respect Frank's opinion. And, and again, I, I, you know, we're all speculating a little bit. I, I would push back or I would question a few of the premises of what you're saying, though. The first is that while I'm not in any way going to defend the Trump administration's response to the pandemic, there is one relatively important area where, in fact, the U.S. has exercised relatively significant leadership, and that's in the financial realm. The Bank of International Settlements just issued their annual report in which they made it very clear that the lender of last resort in global finance is still the U.S. Federal Reserve. And the Federal Reserve acted remarkably quickly in response to the sort of first wave of the, the coronavirus pandemic. So there are still areas where I think the U.S. is the leader. Now, and, and another area where it'll re remain to be seen, but I think a key question is if a vaccine is developed, who develops it? If the vaccine is developed in the United States or from a U.S.-sponsored consortium, that also will change um, how people view the U.S. as a result. With respect to China, I absolutely agree that China is trying to articulate this sort of image and, and China is trying to, to expand its soft power. The problem is, is that it, at the same time, China appears to be obsessed with every border dispute it possibly can get involved with. There's been widespread international condemnation of China following a parliamentary vote to impose new national security laws on Hong Kong. The legislation was drawn up in response to last year's pro-democracy protests, with residents potentially facing life in jail for taking part. So you are seeing, you know, China extend its authority over Hong Kong, over the South China Sea. Now let's talk about the Indian Army, which is saying 20 of its soldiers have been killed by Chinese troops in the disputed Kashmir region. This is the first deadly clash on this border in 45 years. In, in contestation with India, literally you have people fighting each other with hatchets. Their development of, I think, what's referred to as wolf warrior diplomacy, in which they continue to threaten countries that are asking for essentially a sort of, you know, commission to investigate the origins of, of COVID-19, suggests to me that really what China is doing is resembling more and more the United States, which is, it is powerful, but it's also unloved. Many will argue that America's soft power started to decline around the turn of the 21st century, when the so-called war on terror fueled rising anti-American sentiment around the world. But there is no denying that Donald Trump's presidency has accelerated this process considerably. What does this mean for the global order, which has long relied on a hegemonic U.S.? If it turns out that Donald Trump loses in November and you suddenly have a president like Joe Biden, and Joe Biden was pretty much viewed as an, an internationalist, sort of well within uh, the foreign policy mainstream when he was vice president— how much do other countries react to that? In other words, does Trump leave permanent scars? And, you know, it's worth remembering, post-2008, you would have seen similar public opinion polls in terms of the United States and the Bush administration circa end of 2007, beginning of 2008. What was remarkable was how quickly those things reversed when Barack Obama got elected. And I think it's worth asking whether that'll be the case going forward. I'm not sure that the sort of distribution of power is shifting as rapidly as people claim. Dan, I want to end our conversation by considering what could come next. 
Earlier, we talked about how Westphalian sovereignty enabled international engagement. And yet, when you actually look at the origins of the Westphalian Peace Treaty, it was Europeans that created this concept of sovereignty. And to quote Henry Kissinger, no truly global world order has ever existed, primarily because countries in Asia, in Latin America, and Africa were not part of the creation of that world order. But this concept of sovereignty did provide them a form of protection, especially in an increasingly interconnected world. So my question is, whether the state is still a prerequisite for effective global cooperation. Let me put it another way. Can we still afford a 17th century definition of sovereignty? I think there are two things worth noting here. The first is, and this is the paradox of of Westphalian sovereignty, is that it could be argued that particularly over the last 15 to 20 years, The countries that have been the most slavish adherents to the notion of Westphalian sovereignty are, in fact, the ones that are furthest away from Western Europe, which is to say that that the West, as we commonly think about it, which is the United States and and Europe, the sort of OECD economies, were more willing to talk about things like the responsibility to protect or the importance of human rights um, or, for that matter, the promotion of, of economic globalization, all of which require acquiescences of sovereignty to global rules. It is countries like Russia and China and Iran uh, that have traditionally been more sort of sounding like, you know, pure Westphalians in this notion. I think one of the ironies of this is that the countries that are now the sort of biggest boosters of the idea of Westphalian sovereignty are the countries that were not at the at the peace of Westphalia to begin with. Because among other things, what they care about primarily is domestic autonomy, and they don't like uh, a lot of the sort of, you know, rules of the game that were generally promulgated by the liberal international order. That is a separate point, though, from the one you raise, which is, is it possible to develop new ideas of sovereignty, you know, going beyond the, the 17th century? And I think the answer here is yes, probably. And indeed, the very fact that you saw ideas articulated like the responsibility to protect suggests that there are elements of, of global civil society that do want to think beyond Westphalian sovereignty. But it should always, you should always be wary of the extent to which these ideas can also be hijacked by interests that don't necessarily desire the same outcome that you do. Dan, thank you. Thank you, Elmira. That was a lot of fun. That was Daniel Dresner, a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. We'd love to hear what you think about it. Please rate and review our podcast. Better yet, subscribe on your favorite listening app. Until next time, I'm Elmira Bayrosley. Opinion Has It is produced and edited by Kasha Brusalian. Special thanks to Project Syndicate editors Whitney Arana and Jonathan Stein. Mm-hmm.